Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The place where books come to die, baby. Why would you say that? I think they come to take on a whole new life, baby. Okay, so actually, can I... Can I actually marry what we just said? Actually, 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 you have my permission. Actually, Ashley says, go for it. So I actually, (laughs) I didn't even mean it. Fuck, what if I got myself stuck in a loop? So in college, I had a professor who talked about literary criticism and how people write essays a lot of times because they just love books so much that they don't know what else to do besides masticate and ingest them. And writing an essay is the same as when you look at a baby and you're just like, I love this baby so much. I wish I could eat its feet. You know what I mean? When you know when you look at a baby, you're like, I want to take a bite of you. I don't know what to do. So books come here to die because we look at them. We love them so much. We take giant bites out of them. We're eating them. We're chewing them. We're making them little paper mache's. They're living in our tummy. But what else comes out of tummies? Watermelon trees. Babies. (laughs) (laughs) So after we eat the books, we give birth to a brand new life of the books, which is this hot take pod. And can I ask you something, Ashley? Of course. If you were to describe our hot takes to people, would you say they're just us reading them verbatim, line for line, no criticisms? Well, that wouldn't be a hot take at all. That would just be a line read. We are masticating. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly hate this analogy. I feel like it's disgusting. I wish we had stuck with watermelon trees. Okay, 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 okay. These books have seeds in them. You swallow a seed. What comes out of it? A whole new tree. And what this podcast is, it's the tree of life, baby. That's a big order. The tree of opinion. This is baby. honestly the giving tree. And I haven't read that book really, but I- okay. I don't think that that analysis is right either. This has become a mess. This has become an absolute we roll on like baby. a horror show. Can I tell you guys in some situations we would stop and just start over and be like, this really got away from us. Sometimes the riff gets away from you and you actually end up choking on it. But this time we actually are on a time crunch. We only have seven hours to record this podcast, which means not a lot of time for mistakes. <laughs> not a lot of time for mistakes. Usually we record for about an hour and a half and then take a two hour phone break and then record for another hour and a half and then edit that into a 15 minute podcast. <laughs> Essentially what we're saying is right now the only way out is through <laughs> So should we move on? No, what I was trying to <laughs> say. No, what we're saying is if what you're looking for is just a reading of a book by the audiobook. If what you're looking for is a critical analysis, much like a chewed up essay from Claire's Ivy League professor. He was known for spitting books right on the ground. Carry forth with us. Okay. And the people who have carried forth with us through these meaningful times our five-star viewers. We love you more than anything. We also just found out that we only see on our U.S. phones the U.S. reviews. And so we've had some people from other countries screenshot the reviews from their countries and send them. And we're going to read those in the coming weeks because even if you're not here, if you're somewhere else, a better place even, heaven. Yeah, if you're reviewing us from heaven, we will get to those screenshots soon. (laughs) Yeah, but we want you to know that we appreciate you too. So if you live in a different country and we've skipped your name, that is why it turns out our phones are slaves to the county lines (laughs) (laughs) to these reviewers who show up on our phones we love you the whiz sing it like michael jackson katie 224257886555 god i appreciate you and thank you for giving us your social security number (laughs) nora medina thank you so much saint tawny lime yum i love citrus e beer shank i love that too broccoli rob my cousin, I don't know if you guys know this, but I happen to be a stock of broccoli. House Hunter 65, I hope you find your house. Just a review of this app. Thank you for just that. Tilly Av, my favorite street. Teffy, 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 I think is probably Teffy. And so thank you. I love you so much. And I can't wait to have you back on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Teaser. Haley G. Callison, I adore you. Katie from the past, thank you for traveling through time to leave us this review. Okay, can I tell you something? I knew there was going to be a lot of reviews this week, so I was like, I better keep an eye on these to make sure she doesn't misread them. Not Katie from the past. Katie the Pest. (laughs) (laughs) Katie the Pest, you're not a pest to me. You're just a time traveler. (laughs) Victoria 1. I wouldn't scream if I saw you in real life. Catastrophe. I think that your review was actually quite successful and not a catastrophe. Pissed off. I'm sorry that you're upset. Co-Roxy Ann. Thank you for being our co-Roxy. And Landon Yarbs. Thank you for Yarbing. Broken Gaydar. Okay, I hope you fix it soon. <laughs> G Tomo Logato. 
I don't have anything. I just like that. Oh, they're an OG. Who's a Tabs listener? What's oh up? my Who's God. Head? Happy Pappy. I'm glad you're happy. Bread Boy. Thank you for your carbs. Aries. 304 you're 305 to me clocky 31 thank you for keeping time tb honestly i appreciate your honesty and that's where we left off last time we're so excited next week we're gonna get through the england reviews the week after that we'll do australia if you are from another country and have reviewed us let us know we will get a screenshot of it also never forget that if you want to hear your name on the pod and you have already given us a less than five star review you can always go back and change that and we are happy to correct what has been originally wronged which was your original opinion of us (laughs) claire Uh uh-huh what would you write in your this week's chapter of your memoir about what (laughs) (laughs) what would you title your memoir of this week of a chapter (laughs) i would say getting back out there baby something upsetting that has been happening to me consistently bizarrely because you'd think once I corrected them they would stop making this error but every week when I talk to my parents they make an illusion or an outright comment about how I have quit comedy (laughs) how I'm not doing stand-up anymore I don't know how many times I correct them they're just like well you don't do shows and I'm just like okay well not for the lack of trying I can't bum rush a stage okay (laughs) this is not me quitting comedy this was very much comedy quitting me Lest we forget there was a pandemic. And so that took the wind out of my sails. Do you know what? I didn't forget that there was a pandemic. But the thing is, and I think they follow you on Instagram and they see you're doing a lot of shows. And I think their mind, they're like, oh, Claire is not doing this because she's chosen to take herself out of the game. And not that the coach has <laughs> benched me. And in this situation, of course, the coach is every other comedian in New York City who has the opportunity to put me on their show, but just has chosen not to. <laughs> I have maybe 1,100 coaches and not one of them sees potential so far. I will say... I feel like you and Mac, because you don't hang out all day, every day anymore, mm-hmm. were hanging out a lot more at night. Since shows started coming back, I feel like I'd gone to a lot without you. Yeah. Because you I have. feel like you were having dates and stuff, and I was actively quitting dating. And so I was just being like, if I sit home alone, I'll re download a dating app. So I was out every night. And so now that he's gone, it's great because I'm so lonely at home. I'm back out in the, not the dating scene, but something worse, something worse than the New York City dating scene. I'm back hanging out at comedy shows in bars. And I have to say, I love it. It's brutal. (laughs) I do have fun, but you're like better at it than I am. You have a strength for it. I think not only are you naturally inclined to do it, you've also got the muscle. Well, I love chatting. I love drinking and chatting. Two of my favorite things are having a beer and a chat. I don't love having a beer. I love having a chat. I think the problem with comedy is they're all a bunch of freaks. And I think we're all coming out of the pandemic. And I don't think I'm alone in saying that there's a little bit of a social anxiety that comes with having been a shut in. Yes. For 15 straight months. I think even people like me who are naturally extroverted and social. I was in a house for one full year with somebody who like really likes me. Yeah. And now it's hard to put myself in situations with people who I'm not sure if they like me. And it is stressful and then on top of that why it's extra stressful is comics are a bunch of fucking freaks they are absolutely freaks to their core who have allowed themselves fully to be as socially anxious as they want to be they let themselves off the hook a lot from being socially normal okay can I say why I think we've had the opposite experience Mm -hmm. is because while you've been stuck in a house with someone who loves you yeah I have been dating and so now switching from dating to hanging out with comedians either way I'm going out and just like having a chat with someone that I probably don't know that well but the people that I meet on dating apps it's like when you go to college with somebody that you went to high school with and you never spoke to them in high school but in college you have so much in common because you're like oh do you remember Warren Street they closed it down because a bus got stuck and they're like oh my god thank god somebody else here knows what Warren Street is like I also think another thing that's different in our experiences is I think when I started comedy I felt I would say rightfully so that people did not like me, that people tend to not like me. And it's kind of my comedy origin story. I'm like, no, I swear I'm easygoing. Watch me be (laughs) self-deprecating. I'll make you laugh. Please like me. And now I think people feel pretty neutral for me, but it's still that projection of being like, every time I'm in there, I feel like people don't want to talk to me. I feel a little bit more like I have to earn their conversation or whatever. Whereas I think you have less of that. And I know at this point, I've been in the game long enough that they know who I am. And I don't think they're thinking about me at all. But I think I have a little bit more of that residual. But you know what? Here's my thing. My end story is I'm back out there. I'm hanging out little by little. I'm getting the ball rolling once more. Ashley? Yeah? What would the title of your memoir this week be? So I was going to call mine back back in the New York groove because you I was... You can't think of another one. I just did no, it. No, because mine was a song title and yours was just a random slew of words. <laughs> I had already thought of mine. You hadn't already thought of yours. Somebody else had thought of yours and then you plagiarized yeah but I already looked it up to be like who wrote that song who wrote that song I already forgot (laughs) I was gone for 10 days and 
I like thought that I was happy being gone. I was like being home is nice. And then I got back and immediately felt the electric rush of New York City. And I just love it here. And last night I was supposed to go on a date, but instead I went to that show with Claire. And it was just so fun to hang out. But it was just so fun. And when I'm home, even though it's nice to be home and at my parents' house, I'm so happy to be back. And that's really all this week because I feel like we've covered it during your section. But I feel very electrified to be back and I'm in such a good mood. Yay! I'm happy you're in a good mood. Before we get into this week's memoirist by popular demand i do want to plug the patreone oh yes this week we are watching the anna nicole smith documentary and we are going to town on it you guys know that here at celebrity memoir book club we fully believe that if you watch a documentary with subtitles that is a book yes so tune in subscribe check it out if you ever want to hear us cover an off the beaten path topic we put it on the patreon anyway this week's memoirist also a chatterbox and also a bossy pants it's Tina, Tina Fey. By popular demand, you guys demanded that we do a comedy book, and we have now bit the bullet, and we've done the queen of comedy herself, Ms. Fey. Ms. Fey. Do you want to start with the cover of this book, the fact that it's a silly cover? It's Tina Fey looking beautiful and made up, but with boy hands. And kind of a bowler hat and tie. I do think it's just very interesting because there is an episode of 30 Rock about not doing comedy photo shoots. She kind of steals the 30 Rock jokes and puts them in here. Yeah. Anyway, Claire, what did you know about Tina before you opened this manhanded book? I mean, what didn't I know about Tina? I grew up on her Saturday Night Live. I come from a big Saturday Night Live household. Same. I didn't even realize it was bizarre until I had a high school boyfriend sleepover. And I remember my parents were like, hey, SNL is on soon. And he's like, you guys are really obsessed with SNL. And I was like, we're not obsessed with us alone. But we did. Like, we watched it. It was like a thing. I can't believe you come from a family, like both an SNL family, which is for nerds, and a boy can sleep over in high school family, which is for One Tree Hill parents. High culture, low class. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I've known her since SNL. I'm a huge 30 Rock fan. I love 30 Rock. I did a college course on comedy where I wrote an essay on one of the shows I had actually already read this book 10 or 15 years ago I've actually put a lot of thought into Tina Fey as a person as a comedian I loved her work I had always wanted to be a Tina Fey type I know in the recent times she's gotten a little bit of a a backlash, if you will. The lash, it's coming back on her. I would say that I knew a lot about her. I loved her on Saturday Night Live. Everyone's life has a heyday of Saturday Night Live. I do think my parents' favorite years are probably different than my favorite years. I think everybody says SNL hasn't been good since I was 12 years old and nobody ever puts together that maybe it was the crucial time of being 12. Yeah, but I do think looking back on it, she says in this book, the women of SNL during Tina Fey's era, it was a changing of the guards in comedy almost. The fact that this show that was a comedy institution that had always had very funny women and very funny people in general had this lieu of extremely funny women that were really leading the show was unique. So you talked about Tina Fey being the changing of the guards for women in comedy and that era. Those women represented like a secondary changing in terms of who a comedian is. And I think until mm -hmm. then, comics were like these fucked up people jerking off in corners. Yeah. Comedy had been for fucked up people on drugs. Everyone was on coke or heroin. They were all going to die soon. You only did comedy because you had been molested by your like evil dad. And they really came through and said, actually, you could just be funny. Like you could be yeah. in comedy because you're a funny person. Yeah. You and I don't have enormous traumas. The idea that comics used to be just fully on cocaine all the time. We can function without cocaine. And that's like a huge step. Yeah, I don't even do cocaine. That's a unique thing about me. <laughs> you like love that about yourself. Because people think I'm on cocaine a lot. Should we get into this book? So let's get into the intro because I do think it is important with these memoirs to always talk about what the intro is. Because in the intro, these authors always say what the point of their book is. And if we want to give them the Caroline Calloway benefit of the doubt, we'll be like, well, what did you want this to be? What was the context? <laughs> <laughs> so she talks about how the most annoying question you get asked as a woman is like, how do you juggle it all? Or like, how can you be the boss of all these people? And she's like, it's the dumbest fucking question. I don't know. I do it like everybody else. I am very happy doing it. I don't feel uncomfortable. But that's sort of what this book is a response to. Like, how do you juggle it all? And she's like, okay, this is my experience in the working world and juggling it all. Yeah. So it starts with her childhood, as any good memoir does. Her, as Busy Phillips would say, narrative story is when she was five years old, she was slashed in the face by somebody in a back alley. To this day, she has the scar. And if you've never noticed it, it's because on 30 Rock, she has so much control being the executive producer that she only allows them to film from her 
quote unquote good side. That is so fascinating to me. What is your good side, Ashley? Straight on from the front. That is so unique. I know because I don't like my side profile at all. So I don't have a good side because to be from the side is bad. One of the things that gives me such an affinity for Ariana Grande is that I feel like we have actually very similar face problems. <laughs> Our eyes are too narrow, okay. but we have a very strong jawline. So we both have the same good side. I like to turn the right side out. Okay, so you guys could never be photographed together. Well, we could, but only in a Rockette style line. (laughs) So she's like, my whole life I got treated special because of the slash because everyone always felt so bad for me that I'd been like attacked in an alley. But I didn't really realize that was the reasoning. I just always thought I was everybody's favorite. So it gave me a lot of confidence to be performative. That is so fascinating to me to not realize that a slash across the face is why people suddenly started being really nice to you. Well, when you're five, I guess you're like, I'm healed. Okay, but how lucky that she didn't internalize that trauma. I would have never walked in the street again. I would have said wide open fields only here on out. Take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and wide open. And I can see anybody from all angles. I honestly would have gone with wide open spaces by the Dixie Chicks for that rip. I'm not you. I don't know music. They just say wide open spaces a lot more. So she gets slashed in the face. And the other thing that's very interesting is that she uses this facial scar as a way to judge and assess other people. In the same way that I think that the way that people hate the Kardashians is the way they feel about themselves. She always says that the way people ask a question about her scar is the way that they process the world, basically. The childhood chunk is kind of thesis doubt by being like, if you are looking to raise a 23-year-old virgin... who is deeply obedient and afraid of their parents. Whatever they did to me, do that to your kid. So she had pretty strict parents. They're both Republicans. She ends up in theater camp and is, I think she's a bit heavier in college and has some pretty bad haircuts. She hasn't really found her cheekbones yet. So she befriends the only people who will have her, which is the gays in the theater camp. Yeah, and she also does talk about physicality a good chunk in this and attractiveness. And she has a couple of points that I think are really funny because they are points that you have good jokes about. Like this line of hotness being now this unclimbable mountain because instead of just being hot or not hot, now we've created this world where you are either hot or close enough to becoming hot that you can't stop working towards it. And I think it's interesting that she writes this because she's so clearly worked towards it. Tina Fey hasn't changed that much, but you really see the way that she's carved out the most attractive version of herself and is not letting go. There are a lot of people in Tina Fey's comedy peer class who kind of peaked already. Mm -hmm. And Tina Fey keeps getting hotter. And I'm like, man, you are holding on for dear life. I really like what she says about beauty in this book. And we'll get to it more, I think, when she ascends into fame. Yes. But I think her and I have almost identical feelings about beauty. But I agree 100% where it's like it used to be just you were or you weren't. But now you have to starve yourself down. And I think we talk a lot about it with Kardashian Colloquium. Yeah. She talks about how you can kind of liken it to the American dream. The way that beauty standards in this country are is like a moral failing if you're not beautiful because we could all be working harder towards it. Yes. If you're not hot, that just means that you haven't put in the money and the effort into investing into becoming this hot commodity and it is your fault. You know how I feel about body positivity. Yeah. We just need to be like beauty isn't the most important thing. We're not trying to say everyone should strive towards beauty or we should view everything as beauty. It's like we should stop viewing everything through the lens of beauty all the time. It's mm-hmm. insane. You have a joke about how sometimes the tree has just grown too far on a tilt and now that's just the way the tree grows yeah and I can really read that in Tina Fey's book she definitely grew on an extreme tilt and I think you and I grew on too much of a tilt but I do think that there's time to overcorrect for the younger generation just like make them all ugly if I have kids I'm gonna make them disgusting well I always laugh because once or twice on TikTok I've gotten in trouble for calling somebody ugly and they're like how fucking dare you make up somebody's look that is such a fucked up thing to say and I'm like actually it's your moral value on beauty that is making this an insult There's a lot of things that are just objectively true. And for me to be like, this person isn't pretty. And you're like, how dare you say that? That's so rude. Why? It's only rude if you see it as the end all be all. I'm not a good long distance runner. If you said, oh, that girl, she has no aerobic stamina. And people are like, how dare you say about that? That's vicious. I'd be like, I don't know. It's just true. I don't see it as a moral failing. It's your obsession with beauty. Not even saying ugly or pretty or whatever but if you say a feature that is known to not be pretty like if you say oh yeah this actress has a giant head everyone's like go go fuck yourself and it's like no no but like proportionally her head is big Mm -hmm. so she talks about befriending the gays she has an interesting acknowledgement about herself she's like best friend with all these older gays who come back to the community theater program to help direct and stuff and she's 17 18 and they're all in their 20s And one night, this 25-year-old man is going to hook up with this 20-year-old man that she knows from the town. And she keeps trying to play interception and get them to not hook up. And she gets called out on it the next day. And they're like, we get that you have a crush on Sean. And so it's hard for you to see him. And she's like, I don't have a crush on the other guy. That wasn't what it is. And she goes, I had to realize that I fully just didn't see gay people as full humans. (laughs) 
So she talks about the half closet, which is when someone is obviously not straight, but not actively pursuing romantic relationships or just they haven't come out to anybody yet. They haven't come out, but everyone's just kind of around them being like, okay, we know that they're gay. They're not ready to tell us yet. So we just have to respect that and kind of be here. And then when they do come out, we have to be like, what? Really? Congratulations on coming. And like pretend we didn't know. That's just the song and dance that everyone does. She says it's nice when you have a close friend in the half closet because they're not dating. They're your side character. Especially for someone like Tina Fey who had no luck with boys. And yeah. Honestly, it seems like after college. So for her to get to be the main character wasn't common. Yeah, or for her to be playing on this even playing field. She was so bad at dating, I guess, in high school that she literally had to befriend people who she thought were self-imposed asexuals. Yes. (laughs) Because that was the only people she could relate to. And so she has this realization that she didn't want her gay friends to also be full and romantic beings. She couldn't believe that like they had needs and they had lives outside of being her sidekicks. And I think that that is a nice realization. I feel like we all know that straight person who like really revels in being the gays' go-to friend. The gay best friend character I've always felt was deeply homophobic. When girls are like, oh my God, he's my gay best friend. I'm very morally questionable overall. But I will say since high school, it's always given me like a real queasy feeling where people are like, oh my God, he's just like my gay best friend. And I'm just like, stop saying that. He's a human being. They literally turn them into like a cardboard cutout to hold purses. And it's really fucking weird. The Tina Fey thing. Obviously, there's the top level of homophobia, but I do think there is the image of thinking you are the main character and everybody else is a side character and then that is something that everybody has to grow out of is like everyone goes through with their parents and they find out their parents have full lives outside of just being like their mom and dad yeah there is that becoming an adult where you're like okay not everybody's life revolves around me and I can't get mad or I feel like I went through it a lot when all my friends started dating and moving with their boyfriends and I was like I thought we were going to be roommates forever I thought we were going to be in a college dorm for the rest of our lives what do you mean you have a boyfriend yes you can't get a boyfriend you're my best friend (laughs) That's how I feel about you anyway. <laughs> and can I tell you, I feel guilty every day for it. Good. As long as as long as you carry that guilt. I know that I'm being a bad friend to you by having a boyfriend and I'm sorry. The other thing I want to talk about before we go further in is the way that some of the edgy comedy in this book aged. The way that the calling out of her gay friends in this very title first way sexuality first a lot of people are referenced ethnicity first if they're not white all this stuff feels really weirdly passe in a way where it's like this was probably woke for the time because I didn't read this when it came out and I do think that a lot of this was probably fairly woke adjacent for when it came out but now a couple years later already feels so beyond and I think it's so interesting because we do that too we definitely have had takes on this podcast that I think even like a year later looking back on I'd be like I don't know that I stand by that like I don't know that I admonish her for it I hope that she's done more reflection since and not become like a JK Rowling of her time but like you said she's had backlash since and I'm like coming from like a white person I don't know if I can be like I don't know that that's a bad thing but I do think that to not state your opinions but you have to be able to say that they're wrong do you know what I mean the thing about that book is it is an artifact it is an object in time that is supposed to stand the test of time and I think that this is something that didn't most works don't stand the test of the time but the idea of a good book is that it should yes I would honestly say Janice Dickinson's book is like 20 years old it still felt just as relevant yeah, because it was so deeply personal. And I think the problem with edgy comedy, edgy comedy is topical comedy because it's the edges of society as we know them today. Yeah. So what Tina Fey does in this book is every time there is somebody and it's not even just not white people, it's just it's not country club white people. Anybody that would not have been allowed in a country club in like 1972 is like ethnicity first. It's like I bought this from a Russian in Bergdorf. My husband got a suit from a Portuguese tailor. This Romanian dancer, this Filipino bus boy. Everybody is given a qualifier. And I do think at the time it was edgy funny where there was almost this thing where it's like, well, it is true. But to watch the way it's aged so poorly, I'm not even saying it's offensive. It does just feel hack. Yeah. I think that it's one thing to do it in your stand-up because outside of specials, the thing about stand-up is it is in the moment. It is this live one-off performance. And that's what makes stand-up a unique special experience is that it is the engagement and the truth of that moment. But if you're going to write something that stands the test of time, edgy comedy doesn't age well. What ages well is like honest emotional truth I think Busy Phillips's book will age better than this because in 30 years the experience of being a teenager is still gonna suck there might be different clothes but it's always gonna suck in that same you're trying to figure yourself out way that's the thing about honestly 30 Rock and Mean Girls two of Tina Fey's her two big victories kind of yeah I feel like there are jokes within both of those pieces that have obviously not aged well and have caused a bit of backlash but the 
core of both of those projects, being a woman who's trying to have control in her workplace, being a teenager in a normal high school in the middle of America, the core of those characters has aged so well to me. So I am half on half off board with the backlash of Tina Fey because so I know that the Asian community has come out against Tina Fey and when I look at the way she's written Asian characters I'm like yeah they're all one dimensional and pretty racist I get why you're mad that's very valid yes but the other thing I will say about Tina Fey is I think people who are humorless do this thing where there is punching up and punching down and there's also playing a character and I think a lot of people misunderstand that if you write a bad character in a novel nobody's going to accuse the author of being a bad person because the character was bad they were bad for a reason and a lot of times some of the things that she gets in trouble for putting in her show were like to prove the point of how absurd and bad these takes are oh totally and that makes me mad when people like miss the joke the joke was that she's on your side and she's showing how absurd it would be to not be on that side that's the other thing i'm saying is like did she jk rolling it double down on these things or is she apologizing you're saying it's okay for her to even been less evolved in some of her thinking if she will grow but if she's still like no Every high school Asian girl is fucking the gym teacher. I've heard girls five ever. People are pretty happy with how she did in that. That that it seemed to show growth. Here she is in college. And here's the exact sentence. We probably should have started this with an example. Let me start off by saying that at the University of Virginia in 1990, I was Mexican. (laughs) I looked Mexican, that is, next to my 15,000 blonde and blue-eyed classmates, most of whom owned horses or at least resembled them. We know that she got into acting because she found solace in this theater company when she was in high school and the gays and the gays and then she goes to college where she studies acting I do want to quote one story from her college days because it is the story that stuck with me from the 12 years ago that I read this book she talks about being in love with this guy who kind of treated her shitty and would sometimes let her make out with him at the end of a date that he had gone on with another girl she was very much the backup call but she tells the story about one time he invites her to go on like a late night hike nearby and they're going hiking in the nighttime which is crazy and then she gets there and his roommate's been invited too and she's like I could tell the roommate was mad I was there I was mad that he was there we get there neither boy had remembered a flashlight neither boy had remembered water Water. she's like I don't know why we're hiking at one point the guy she likes falls down the mountain but he's like I'm okay and they just keep hiking up they get to the top and her and this guy are alone and then he tells her this story about how two days earlier he had taken the girl he really liked to this mountain and had not been able to seal a deal with her and how heartbroken he was. And then he gives this detail. He's like, I planned this whole picnic for us. We had the picnic. And then I went to offer her a piece of gum. And she asked me to rip it in half because she could only handle half of a piece of Trident gum. And he was like, can you imagine? She's so small. She could only handle half of a piece of Trident gum. And Tina Fey being like, fuck that gum bitch. That is the funniest detail. You know, sometimes a DJ, you're like, yes, I know that man. I know that girl. I know that feeling. The half of Trident. You want to slap her in the face and be like, get it together. Yes, eat a whole gum. Just man up. Grow some balls and eat some full gums. So obviously we've mentioned that Tina Fey was a little bit unlucky in the love department. Like I said, she was chasing this guy. She talks about being left in high school. She had a high school boyfriend, which is more than some of us can say. And he left her for a dancer girl. And basically she realizes that shitting on this dancer girl was a fucked up thing to do. But she says, obviously, as an adult, I realize this girl on girl sabotage is the third worst kind of female behavior. So I'm like, okay, it's true. Like no one can steal your boyfriend. That's dumb. And she goes right behind saying like all the time (laughs) and leaving your baby in a dumpster. I'm just like, okay, well, I do think hating other women for getting a boy's attention is bad. Leaving your baby in a dumpster is bad. I'm trying to say like less. I'm so I'm trying. (laughs) No wonder you will be tried at The Hague for your crimes. So she's in college. She's studying acting. Then she moves to Chicago to pursue improv, which This whole chunk is a tough chunk to swallow as a stand-up comedian. It's so interesting to me how she kept on talking about the way that they were like working these dead-end jobs to pay for improv classes. And she's like, is it kind of like a cult? And I was like, yes, you were were literally in a cult. (laughs) The whole culture is that you work your ass off and you try so hard so you can keep affording more classes to keep the juice flowing. The difference is it did get her on SNL right quick. And she did start making a living off of it after one year. So I would say actually, if she's in a cult, it's like the Mormon church. It's a very successful one where you could get rich I know it is we are in a knife selling pyramid scheme (laughs) she was in a cult that gets you to the top Scientology an Illuminati style cult we are Rodan and Fields (laughs) so she works at the YMCA and again not to get too like PC police around here but I do want to say as a comic and not even ethically or morally I do not care about the ethics and morals of literally anything but there are some things that are just punchlines that from a comedic standpoint it does age poorly because it just feels hack so two of her big punchlines are 
saying that a prostitute is dirty. Yeah. So to say that something's really smelly, she was like, it's like if you cooked a bunch of eggs and then cooked them in the bathwater of a prostitute. Or Sex work doesn't mean you're yucky. She's one of the top comedy writers in the world. She was the head of SNL. She wrote an Emmy-winning sitcom. If this is the best joke you come up with, that prostitutes are dirty it is very hacked so she's working at the ymca is why i bring it up she's 23 years old she's manning the reception desk and i do think it does sound tough because while a lot of upper middle class moms are just coming to work out there's also a lot of unhoused people who live here and sometimes they're off their meds and sometimes they're aggressive she gets there at 5 a.m which is tough in chicago she's taking the train i mean it doesn't sound like a pleasant job i worked reception in finance and that sucked so reception in a halfway house sounds much worse especially if you have to get there very early at one point she has a joke about how some of these guys would try to sneak women and you're like can you imagine a woman sleeping with a literal homeless person the bar is on the ground and i'm like i think half of the actors in la are homeless people yeah i think i've dated a homeless person before it's like a boring joke some of these jokes are less i'm upset from a moral standpoint and more just like come on tina i know you probably didn't write this book but you could have told your ghostwriter to try something a little bit more original she's doing comedy and i think that here at the second city is where we start really getting a lot of this look at how bad things were up until yesterday for women in comedy it was hard she says only in comedy would a upper middle class white girl from the suburbs be diversifying and she's like i think i got the job at snl because they needed to diversify yeah but she talks about all these different things basically like when she was in the touring cast at the second city in chicago they were like trying to write a scene which was two girls and they were basically like the audience is not going to be interested in a scene that's just two girls also for a long time the casts were four men and two women and there was this big push to make it equal to make it three men and three women And they were like, that just wouldn't make sense. The roles wouldn't make sense. And she has this line where she's like, it's a show that we make up. We improvise to create these sketches. How could there not be enough roles for women when we're making up the roles as we go? (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) So she works for a year at Second City while she's working her day job. And after one year at the YMCA, she's finally able to quit. And she's able to join the touring cast. So the way it works is that Second City has two house teams and three touring teams. She makes it onto a touring team. The house teams, improv shows, based on what works on the improv show, they make the good things they come up with into sketches. Then they take the sketches and make the touring teams do them on the road. Her team, which actually does include Amy Poehler, which I did not realize that they had literally known each other their entire careers. Yeah. I always thought they weren't really good friends. I think that they were like really good friends. They're the high school friend that you go to college with and you're like, you end up here too. It's crazy. But so they're on the road. She laughs that they had a ton of fun because they would throw out all the sketches they were supposed to do and just like write their own shit. She's like, we weren't done. It was me, Amy Poehler. It's a pretty top notch team. I'd rather see Amy Poehler come up with what she wants to rather than do some joke some dude from Chicago thought were good. Yes. So they're on this team. They're on the road having a good old blast. She doesn't really talk about how she got SNL. She just says one day she like was flying to New York for an interview with Lauren Michaels. And yeah. I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure there's 18 levels before this that you've neglected to mention. But so then she gets hired at SNL as a writer. She was not in front of the cam for three years. She was just back there writing bits. And again, she talks about how her very first show writing for SNL, she didn't get anything on, of course, because she was so nervous. And she had to talk to Sylvester Stallone. And there was some sketch where Sylvester Stallone needed a wife. And one of the female cast members really wanted to do it. But instead of letting the woman on the cast do the part, they did Chris Kazan in a wig. Because the assumption there was baseline, a man in a wig is funnier than any woman could be. And she's like, I do think one way that SNL has changed since I've been there is nobody would ever think that Chris Kazan in a wig is by definition funnier than Maya Rudolph or Amy Poehler. And she's like, and I don't think he was funnier than the women on the cast then. But they just weren't allowed to shine the way they are allowed to now. Mm -hmm. There is such a default that the men are the funnier ones and you only have a woman when there's nobody else. If a woman has to do it, then put the woman in. But if a man could do it, then obviously first choice. So let's get into this chapter, which I think is really interesting. And I know you were excited about. It's called The Secrets of Mommy's Beauty, which I really hate the amount of mommying and daddying in this book. So in this chapter, she gives us her beauty secrets, which I really oscillated on this chapter because at first I was like, shut up the fuck up with your beauty secrets. And then I was like, oh, she is someone who is a regular person who has made herself into the most attractive version of herself. And that's the beauty secrets we want to hear. If Gwyneth Paltrow was just a school teacher in Virginia, she would still be the most beautiful woman there. She just is like a naturally beautiful person. And she does a bunch of things, enhance her overall glowiness. And she spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on those things. But Gwyneth Paltrow was going to be beautiful. (laughs) Tina Fey was not going to be beautiful if she didn't make herself beautiful. (laughs) This is mostly a joke. It's like form good beauty habits early. And then it's the story about how she would just use a hot comb. And then she got like a mullet. 
And she's very pro bra. She says she has a line about how you should always wear a bra no matter what, just because you'll never regret wearing it. And of course, clearly, I have not owned or worn a bra in truly four years. So unrelatable to me. <laughs> that did not age well. That's why I oscillated on this chapter so much. It's because it is so obviously a joke. But also all of these tips are the tips. She does put actual tips into these joke tips, like drinking a fuck ton of water and wearing sunscreen and things like that where I'm like yeah no those are the only tip those are actually the important things she talks about always having a manicure that is a thing that makes a regular person look polished me and Daphne have long believed that not everyone can be beautiful but everyone can be attractive yes that is the Sarah Jessica Parker truth and the trick to being attractive is having good hair good teeth good skin yes and those are purchasable that's kind of what I thought she was saying with this chapter almost but she was also like joking Okay, well, she's a comedian, so she has to say it funny. I know. I guess I didn't begrudge this. I don't begrudge it, but I was saying I went back and forth on it by being like, shut up, and then also being like, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, none of it bothered me. None of it stuck with me. She does do two chapters next that are the remembrances of being very skinny and the remembrances of being a little bit fat. She does pros and cons for both, and she's kind of both like, I don't know. You should be skinny at some point. Why not? Just do it. It helps. (laughs) And then she's like, yeah, be fat. Who cares? It's fun to eat everything you want, and it shouldn't really matter. I do think actually she has a very body-neutral take in this it is very like I don't know at one point before I had kids I got really skinny and you know what my knees always knocked and I was cold all the time but men liked me more and it made me mad that they liked me more and she's like and then at one point I was kind of fat and I ate all the time and I couldn't run at all and men wouldn't date me and it made me mad too to have a body to have a female body is hell and it's a prison (laughs) no matter what you do and I think to know both sides of the prison is almost worse it's almost better to be the ignorance of having only ever been overweight or having only ever been thin because to have firsthand knowledge of how differently people treat you feels like something you can't know always had like a real issue with in my anorexic brain you guys know that I had a bit of an eating disorder for a little bit I was I was a little bit chunky I know people talk about like big boned or small boned isn't a thing but I do have like a smaller frame for a tall person and weight doesn't sit well on me I look bad when I gain a lot of weight it doesn't look like it makes sense on my body and I know that because when I was bigger guys didn't talk to me so then when I got really skinny and I was like super anorexic and I got super skinny the amount of people that started talking to me and flirting with me I had such an angry resentment towards all men it really fucked with me to be like two years ago you would not have looked my way twice and then the fact that all I've done is just simply starve myself (laughs) all of a sudden makes me worthy of you I'm still the same personality I'm still the same person like I listened to all the same music the fact that like all of a sudden you're like oh what are you listening to while you're on the treadmill like that's a really great song I'm like yeah I was listening to this song fucking two years ago but you wouldn't have looked twice at me it made me so mad and I would really just treat guys bad (laughs) I really get that it is this weird thing that as much as it's like yeah I want to be neutral or whatever but it's so hard when the world doesn't reflect neutrality back at you I want to read actually it's the very next chapter and a thing she learned from Lauren Michaels that I want to talk about where I think that me and Tina Fey are very aligned and I'm going to read the quote okay television is a visual medium Lauren has said this to me a lot. It basically means go to bed. You look tired. You may want to be diligent and stay up with the writers all night. But if you're going to be on the show, you can't. Your street cred with the staff won't help anybody if you look like a cadaver on camera. Also, don't be afraid to make them get your hair, makeup and lighting right. It's not vanity because if you look weird, it will distract from what you're trying to do. If you look as good as you can, people will be able to pay attention to what you're actually saying. I truly believe that I do not care what I look like. Yeah. That being said... I live in a world where I am 100% acutely aware that what I look like is how people will perceive me, how people will judge me, and that I am trying to succeed in an industry where people have to like be visually interested in you. Obviously, on stand-up, you get to go up there and do your little spiel no matter what, but something you learn doing stand-up is that the minute you get on stage, people see you, and that's like 98% of what they're going to think. And then either you successfully convince them that you're not the person they think you are or you play into that role what you're saying has to align with how they're perceiving you you are physically on that stage it's not only your voice and jokes second of all to succeed in today's comedy world you have to have an internet presence instagram for example is a visual medium right now i think the women who are succeeding in comedy of our age and of our demo that are coming up are people like rachel sennett mary beth barone they're people with a strong branding and a large arm of that branding has to come from your Instagram presence and TikTok. And so basically you visually have to be interesting to look at for them to also be interested in the Twitter and the jokes. You have to be a full package. And that is something I've been fighting for a very long time. I've been like, I'm just going to wear my oversized pants. I'm going to put my hair in a bun. I don't wear makeup. I don't give a shit. But at the end of the day, if I want people to listen to me do stand up, they're going to have to look at me first. And I need to just lean into that and 
I am not somebody who's like, oh, I dress for myself. I'm not somebody who's like, when I dress up and put a little mascara on, I feel more confident. I don't. If I can wear sweatpants every day and honestly put my hair in a bun for the rest of my life, I would happily do that. That's when I'm most confident and comfortable. But that's just not the truth of the reality. And in the same way that I had to put on like a dress and slacks for my reception job, I have to go out and get some trendy ass outfits for my Instagram job because it is still a career and you have to dress for the job you want. And I want to be like a successful person. And I think Tina Fey, what she's saying here is just at the end of the day, it's easier if you look the way they want you to look and you can make your living out of fighting it. But I'm not there yet. I'd rather just give them what they want. And then when I get to the top, I can decide then. Yeah. And she mentioned that a couple of times that there are things that you just have to deal with. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is an insight. It is something that you could fight. You could stand up against it and really like make that your fight to fight. But that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to write jokes and be funny. And I also think, though, that there are places where she gets fully lost in her perspective, lack thereof almost, because she is someone who who did easily mold into a fairly conventionally attractive person. I don't know how much work she put into it. We don't know her, but like there's... She keeps claiming that she's never gotten Botox fill or anything. That's bullshit. Um, there's certain... <laughs> Just to get that clear, you think she's absolutely lying when she specifically says in this book she's never gotten Botox? I guess at this point when this book came out, I believe that she was telling the truth. But I think looking at her now, it feels very unlikely, especially looking at the way that all of her contemporaries have aged. Anyway, so the things that I wanted to talk about are the times where I think that she says some like weird things about beauty because for the most part, I feel pretty on the same page as her. But then she'll say things where I'm like, wow, she really has like gotten lost in the Hollywoodiness of it all. There's one part where she talks about how realistic the cast of 30 Rock was and how she feels very proud of the fact that they really all looked like real people. She's like, you know, it wasn't some show where the network is going to come in and be like, there needs to be someone fuckable here. And it's like, then what was three? I get that they were also like doing a play on what the network wanted. Have you ever read the interviews with Rachel Dratched about what happened there? That's the main thing that I was going to point out is Rachel Dratched was supposed to be Jane Krakowski's character and she got replaced by Jane Krakowski because Jane Krakowski's hotter than her. They were specifically told you can do this pilot, but you need a hotter woman to be your lead. And so Jane Krakowski was like, I'll meet you in the middle and I'll have a hot middle-aged woman who's like 36 or something. That was like that meet you in the middle. And then Rachel Dratched was reduced to a weird side character that eventually just got phased out altogether. And in interviews, she's pissed about it. She takes this pride point of being like, everyone looks realistic. And then the other hill she'll die on is she likes this whole chapter about how Photoshop is good which I agree with. I think certain levels of Photoshop I'm not mad at, but I do think that we've reached a level of Photoshop in our society that it's become out of control and it's really damaging. She says, as long as we all know it's fake, it's no more dangerous to society than that radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. And I disagree with that. It's the same thing as that line that we've heard from a couple different writers about love and like letting yourself be treated badly. The thing that I've been guilty of is this thing where like, yeah, you can be in a relationship with a guy who sucks because as long as you know your self-worth, he can't get to you. And that's not true. It will eventually beat you down. And I feel that way about Photoshop too. Like, sure, I can look at every magazine and know that it's Photoshopped to hell, but it still gets in your head and it still gives you bad self-esteem. I also want to point out, she goes, it's only going to trick people in their 70s because only people in their 70s will think it's real. And she goes, people have learned how to spot it. Just like everyone learned how to spot fake boobs. Look for the upper arm meat. If there's no upper arm meat, the breasts are fake. Unlike breast implants, which can mess up your health, digital retouching is relatively harmless. And she goes, Photoshop is just like makeup. But here's what I want to say. I mean, it's very Devil Wears Prada. Like, sure, maybe you think this cerulean blue doesn't affect you, but eventually it trickles down. And then in two years, it's in every gap. And the sweater you're wearing has been chosen for you. Not only is seeing yourself photoshopped bad for the individual, but I think anything that happens to the elite will be filtered down to the regos. Yes. And so for her to be like, well, of course, everybody knows that Irina Shake is photoshopped and has filler or whatever. So it doesn't matter because we can all see it. The problem is now we have Instagram, which has blurred the lines between reality and a cover shoot. And now Khloe Kardashian is editing herself. And then your cousin is editing herself. And then your cousin's cousin doesn't know it's editing. So she goes and gets a BBL, which could kill her. Nothing stays to the top. The things that happen to celebrities don't stay in celebrity land. That's the problem with the internet. Everything gets sifted down. And now people are literally in Thailand dying, getting BBLs. Well, that's what I was going to say is this line. She says, I don't see a future in which we're all anorexic and suicidal. I do see a future in which we all retouch the bejesus out of our own photos at home. Family Christmas cards will just be eyes and nostrils in a snowman border. I get that this is a 
funny far out take whenever she was writing this. But that is literally what's happening is that people retouch the bejesus out of their own photos at home. They've lost complete sight of what a mirror does, what they actually look Mm -hmm. like. And they are putting themselves at enormous risk getting these plastic surgery procedures to look like the augmented versions of themselves that they create in Photoshop based on the augmented versions that they see in celebrity Photoshops. And it is this domino effect that is genuinely hurting people. And it is making people anorexic and suicidal. And (laughs) I just think it's an interesting point of conversation that also didn't age well to be like, we need to give Photoshop a break. I will say airbrushing acne out fine. I don't give a fuck. Like whiten your teeth a little bit, fix your frizzy hair. But when we're just fully augmenting the shape of humans, it's really hurting people. She also has this bit about when hiring mixed Harvard nerds with Chicago improvisers and stir. The writing staff of Saturday Night Live has always been a mix of hyper-intelligent Harvard boys and gifted visceral fun performers. Lauren somehow knew that too many of one or the other would knock the show out of balance. I try to apply Lauren's lessons when staffing 30 Rock and it has all worked out well so far. Our current staff makeup is four Harvard nerds, four performer turned writers, and two regular nerds and two dirtbags. I'm sorry, but one third of your staff to be men from Harvard is not like an even mix of things. Even I was like, you think you need four Harvard men? That's too many. I really think more than one Harvard guy in a room is going to lead to a situation where you're only allowed to talk about Harvard, honestly. (laughs) She really reveres her colleagues, which I really admired. She gives a full shout out to all of the writers who greatly contributed to 30 Rock, includes her favorite joke that they wrote. I mean, there's obviously no diversity in that room. She talks about Donald Glover and his diversity. Not that he was the only black person in the room. It was actually that he was the only young person in the room. And that was really interesting. And you're like, okay. And then she talks about the difference between boys and girls in comedy. And she concludes that the only true difference is that boys pee in jars. This was like a funny but also repulsive chapter where I was like, I literally can't believe we've let men do anything. It's so gross to me. She writes about this phenomenon where she learns that men who are too lazy to walk to the bathroom will just pee in a cup and leave it in the corner of the room for a couple of weeks. I literally can't believe we've lived in a world for this long where people believed that women couldn't do the things that boys do. They're literally too lazy to walk to a bathroom so they pee in a cup. There couldn't be two women in a sketch that'd be too boring. Men are so stupid that they pee in jars instead of walk to the bathroom. I like, I really felt heated by it. (laughs) She gives credence where she's like, it was harder. It was unfair against women, whatever. But then she talks about an example of on SNL, when they do those commercials, I guess because they're not topical, they write and produce them in advance. They're much more expensive than anything else because they're digital shorts. So they cost a lot to make. So it's very competitive who gets to have theirs made. And she had written this ad called the Kotex Classic. And it was about bringing back like the old school giant pads. Their ad didn't get picked up. And so they fought for it. And they realized when they were talking to the men that the men just fundamentally did not understand how pads worked or how they would look or how it would even be shot because they didn't conceptually understand what a pad was. And she's like, oh, so I realized it's not that they didn't think we were funny. It's just that they literally didn't know what we were talking about. So it's not systemic sexism in the workplace. It's just like they're too ignorant. And it's like that actually is the definition of systemic sexism is that there's no women advocating at the top and so their ideas aren't understood because they have historically not been in a position of power so like their perspective has not had to become the general perspective yes i just felt like it was a real cop out she's like see men don't hate women they just don't understand and they've never taken a minute to even think they need to understand and they just continue the way they are and only give jobs to the people that they think are funny because they're just like them but that's not like a big problem She also writes a nice little love letter to Amy Poehler. This is a wild story. So she talks about how they're all writing one night and Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers are like fucking off in the writer's room making some riff. And I guess Amy says something pretty gross. And Jimmy kind of as a joke, but not as a joke. Jimmy being Jimmy Fallon, who was arguably the star of the show at the time, turned to her in an info squeamish voice said, stop that. It's not cute. I don't like it. Amy dropped what she was doing, went black in the eyes for a second and wheeled around on him. I don't fucking care if you like it. Jimmy was visibly startled. Amy went right back to enjoying her ridiculous bit. With that exchange, a cosmic shift took place. Amy made it clear that she wasn't there to be cute. She wasn't there to play wives and girlfriends in the boys scene. She was there to do what she wanted to do and she did not fucking care if you like it. And then again, Tina gives some real, I know it's not her fault, but it's all like the feminism, like the way it keeps evolving. But she's like, so here's my advice to women in sexist workplaces. So she goes, so there's two things here going on. Like one, is the person who's sexist towards you really in your way of getting your goal? If not, who cares? Just keep living your life and don't try to appease them. And then two, if the problem is your boss, is there someone else you could go to? Like your boss's boss? See if you can go around them and just keep persevering until your work proves itself. And I was like, oh God, Tina, I hope we've come past that. To be like your best bet is just to keep fighting with your head down or to 
try and ignore it in your workplace is like not the advice we give anymore because I don't think that that is actually advice that can allow you to live like a full happy life it is like advice that will eventually burn you out until you just give up altogether I guess it like bummed me out because I don't know how much times have changed I think people are more responsive to things but I also think that there is this unfortunate thing where if you are calling people out on their bullshit especially older people who've gotten away with that bullshit for so long at this point you are the problem person you're the person Mm -hmm. who is making the boys club jokes at a work meeting we've always made these jokes and all of a sudden there's a girl in the room saying we can't make the jokes i don't think this is the right advice a good example was like a woman i know her life was being made horrible by the man that was above her his bosses weren't necessarily bad people i think they were generally fair but for her to go to his boss what are they going to do? Be like, hey, by the way, a woman at this company thinks that you're being unfair to her. She was the only one. Yeah. So now the person who is still her direct boss just thinks you tattled on him. And do you think he's going to start making her life easier? Do you think he's going to go home, look in the mirror and be like, oh, I'm so grateful this, for this opportunity to learn or grow? Or is he going to be like, this fucking bitch showed up at my job and is trying to get me in trouble because I think she can't do her job? Nobody does it thinking they're being unfair. Nobody recognizes their yeah. implicit bias. So then he's like, well, I have to go easy on the girls now because otherwise they'll tattle to my boss and I'll get in trouble. That doesn't ingratiate you to anybody. I mean, I don't think Tina Fey's advice is good, but I don't think we're past this. Yeah, I don't think there is a good tip. She did her best. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into Tina Fey as Sarah Palin. So this was something that there was a lot of back and forth about. She wasn't sure if she wanted to do it in the first place because she was working really hard on 30 Rock and wasn't sure she had the time. She had a new baby, a TV show that was her show. In her days, they did sound grueling. She would be shooting 14, 15 hours a day and then go home and have to work on the writing until like 3 a.m. Yeah. And then be waking up at 5.30 the next day for her call time. And she just had a child the whole time. Yeah. I was going to say this sounds like a horrible situation for the writer's room because you're built around a boss that has horrible hours. I have had experiences where my bosses have horrible schedules. And if your boss has a horrible schedule, you have to have a horrible schedule. You have to meet with them when they're free. And it just sucks. So her Sarah Palin character obviously became extremely popular. It was a resurgence of Tina Fey. Like she was big when she was the Weekend Update host. People loved her on SNL. People loved 30 Rock. But Tina Fey is Sarah Palin mainstreamed her for a while. And she says that was her main reason for doing it. Well, she talks about when when Sarah Palin was chosen as the VP nominee, people started writing to her frantically being like, you have to play her on SNL. And she goes, it kind of hurt my feelings that nobody had noticed I had quit SNL two years earlier. My own ego was like, nobody realized I'm not on that show anymore. (laughs) So it launched with that sketch where she and Amy were Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. First of all, I went back and rewatched it this morning. So funny. I mean, I can see Russia from my house. Like truly, it was like a cultural reset. Yeah. (laughs) She talks about like this reception. She said, by the second week, I realized what made this experience so fun and different. For the first time ever, I was performing in front of an audience that wanted to see me. I'd spent so many years handing out flyers, begging people to check out my improv team. I was so used to trying to win the audience over or just get permission to be there that a willing audience was an incredible luxury. And I was like, oh my God, nine years of SNL, two years of 30 Rock. And she's finally in front of an audience that's happy to see her. That was like a heartbreaking moment for me. (laughs) The other thing about this Sarah Palin chunk, aside from the fact that there were people who really finally wanted to see her, it really made her a star in their eyes. There was also a lot of people who were really mad because obviously one of her big trepidations with doing this, not only was her busyness, but also stepping into any sort of political field, people get pissed at you. She says to this day, there's people who hate her for what she did to Sarah Palin. And she's like, male impressionists don't get this. There's no one who's like, I can't believe what Will Ferrell did to George W. Bush. People do hate women. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the choices she ended up making, a lot of her thought process was about how she would be perceived and not about the success of the show or things like that. The idea that they had where she and Sarah Palin would both appear on the show. And she was so against it because first of all, she thought it was a lazy joke, but you can really see in the things that she reacts to that the reason she didn't want to do it is because she didn't want to be hated. Comedy, I think like a big motivation is to not be hated. Like I want to make people laugh. I don't want them to hate me. (laughs) The other thing she talks about is being a working mom, which I find very interesting. And she does kind of talk about the guilt and the stress and like the breastfeeding guilt and then like the not spending your time with your kid guilt. And she talks about three times a year, she'll have an all out ball sesh in her office where she's like hysterically crying. And she's like, first of all, I don't think that should be held against me as a woman because men waste just as much time watching March Madness. (laughs) And then second of all, she's like, you know, we hate it when our memoirists lose sight of the reality of their lives. And she was like, but at the end of the day, I just stop and think every single person on this show 
all 200 of them are also missing time with their kids. And I'm the only one here who's doing my dream job. If I leave this job, that's 200 people who now are just out of a job. I'm so lucky to get to do everything I want. And she goes, when you're a stay-at-home mom, there's other dramas. She's like, I think stay-at-home moms are also bawling three times a year. It's hard no matter what. I think a lot of people ball way more than three times a year. She does really dive into the mom shaming world. And I honestly, parent shaming is one of the scariest things in the world to me. Like internet parent shaming, Mm -hmm. the way that they will just come at every mother for literally every choice and everything. I'm like to publicly parent seems like the most bizarre and horrifying choice because everyone is so passionate about it. She talks about how she didn't breastfeed. It just like wasn't the right call for her. And the way that people come at her with such vitriol for not breastfeeding her baby they're like do you even know your baby if you don't breastfeed them she talks about how she has been offered by a couple of mommy groups like mother of the year for juggling it all and every time she denies because she's like i don't know that i am mother of the year maybe my child will grow up and suck <laughs> like i don't think yeah. we should be making those calls until my baby's like 30 and her personality has settled and we can see whether or not she worked out do you have any other stories that you wanted to talk about oh she does the classic once she gets through explaining her whole life up till the end of the sarah palin thing when this book came out it was 2011 30 rock was still on the air she was like 39 years old so she got through all of her little stories pretty quickly and then she has an entire chapter called what turning 40 means to me and it is i need to take my pants off as soon as i get home i didn't used to have to do that but now i do that's the chapter yeah it's a three sentence chapter and i'm gonna go baby you did have a deadline <laughs> here's what i want to say we did this book because people had been asking us to do female comedians by Amy Schumer. We did it because we love the worms and we want to do what you guys want us to do. This book was exactly my fears for a couple reason, which is one people whose job is to be funny. Their book is going to try to be funny. It wasn't very telling. It didn't have any gossip. It wasn't fun to recall. There was a lot of stuff that we skipped over. That was just like a whole chapter describing her dad, a whole chapter describing how her and her husband juggle Christmas between the two families. It'd be as interesting to hear as somebody trying to tell you a joke they heard a comic do. The experience of reading a comedian's memoir is the tone and the voice and the jokes, which in itself is funny because this was definitely ghostwritten. They all get ghostwriters. Even the people who are famous for being comics get ghostwriters. I mean, she has a full-time TV show. She's not going to sit and write this. It wasn't that juicy in that sense. I do think she had a couple of takes that were good discussion points. But also, I think there's a couple kinds of memoirs. And then there's the memoir someone writes because they want to write a memoir and tell you about their experiences, which is a Busy Phillips, a Lily Allen. And I think there's a memoirist who was offered the money and said, yeah, sure, why not? And Tina Fey, Judy Greer, Kendra Wilkinson... Yeah, these are like, yeah, I mean, for the money, I can sit down and tell you some shit about me, but it's not soul searching. It's not insightful. It's not like emotionally honest. And I think that that's why this book reads so hacky kind of and the humor has aged so poorly because there's not any true emotional honesty in it. And I think Tina Fey as a comic is not particularly deep. She's got a lot of like surface level, clever social commentary. And I love Theory Rock. I think it's hilarious. I think it works, but it, it doesn't make for like that compelling of a book she doesn't give us any of the compulsion she doesn't give us any of the like what made her need to do comedy she doesn't really give us any of the ins and outs there's no interiority there's no depth yeah like even the face slashing story she says I have to tell you that I got slashed in the face so that you know why I'm explaining this other thing but I'm not even going to tell you that story or the fallout you really had no fallout from getting attacked at five Yeah. Busy Phillips went for a walk around the block and she's in therapy 30 years later. (laughs) You're telling me a man came at you with a knife when you were a child and like there's no residual fear there. That story about Amy Poehler snapping at Jimmy Fallon, that made me want to read Amy Poehler's book because it sounds like this whole thing where you're saying women really developed their power and their place. That's the only story where I saw anything of the type. It wasn't just women keeping their head down and proving themselves as funny. Like Amy Poehler walked into that room and said, I will not be the girlfriend. It wasn't an accident. This book took me about four hours to read. It was fun. I love the Trident story. I'll keep that with me forever. Yeah. I feel she's not problematic in a way that's unfixable. I mean, she's obviously crushed it. I love her as a comic. I don't think she's the answers to sexism in the world. But I do still think that she's like somebody to model yourself after. I don't necessarily have a problem with this book. I loved parts of it. I love Tina Fey a lot and I love a lot of the stuff she's made. So when she was like reciting jokes from 30 Rock, I was like, oh, I love this. I think we like read it hypercritically because we're comedians. I think if you read at the beach, you would be like happy to have it. I think that someday she might have a really interesting story to tell. But it just wasn't in this book. I think the stories she has to tell, she tells. Her comedic style is... Not over-the-top parody, but like an inch of parody. Her comedy and her insight is kind of making everything a little bit absurd. I don't think we're ever going to get a ton of deep emotional self-reflection. 
And also the thing is her childhood stories where normally I find connection with people. Her childhood was just very different than mine. I like, I don't relate to the, what was it like to never have a boy want to kiss you stuff. So oh, I actually really, I didn't <laughs> like it in the memoir. Cause I was like, this is actually just kind of boring, but I was like, Oh, this is similar to my life. I actually do think I have stories to tell though. Busy style. I think that just because I wasn't getting an abortion in high school doesn't mean that I don't have things to talk about. And I think that there actually is a lot of really interesting things to say about those on the fringe kids because they weren't side characters. Like no one is the main character. Everyone has a full life if they want to. And so telling those stories with any sort of nuance is something that I really want to see the same way that Caroline Calloway thinks that there should be a tale out there for the non-anorexics. <laughs> I think that there needs to be a tale out there for the kids who weren't doing coke in their parents' basements. They were just watching movies and being vaguely wholesome, but there are things. And so the fact that Tina Fey didn't tell them, I was like kind of annoyed by. If you're renting an Airbnb and it's there. Yes. And you're going to be on a bus traveling or you're going to be sitting by the pool. It's amusing as hell. Yes. You guys, I freaking love you. I freaking love you guys. I hope you guys have the best week. Me too. And we'll see you next time. See you next week, baby.